This is Leah Roseland, um, Affordable Housing Administrator with the City of Lawrence. Good morning, Ahab. Thank you for being here with us this morning. We are ready to get started when you are, Chair. Okay, well, um, let's call the meeting to order and then we'll have the uh, normal announcements and, and public comments. So uh, this is the May 14th uh, City of Lawrence and Douglas County Affordable Housing Advisory Board meeting. Call the meeting to order. And I don't know who, Leah or Dana, Danny, if you would do the, uh, or Jeff or whoever it is that would read the meeting protocol. Sure, Mr. Chair, this is uh, Danny Walters. I have that. Um, I can go ahead and, and read through that. So I'll just provide a few procedural reminders for the virtual meeting today. So this meeting is being broadcast and recorded on the City of Lawrence YouTube channel. The public chat function is disabled, so all chats will go directly to staff. When you're not participating in the meeting, please mute your microphone by clicking on the microphone icon found in the lower left-hand side of the Zoom menu. A red line through the microphone means you are muted. So please remember to unmute when you participate in the meeting. For those of you joining by phone, you can click star six to unmute your phone. When you are participating in the meeting, please do keep your video on. And when you're not participating, you are welcome to turn your video off. The video icon is located by the camera or by the microphone icon on the lower left-hand side of the Zoom screen. So you can still hear everything while the video is off. You just um, will be not on camera. So turning your video off when you are participating just allows the active participants to be seen on the screen. So if you uh, have any trouble with uh, navigating that, just send us a chat and we'll help you walk through it. The city reserves the right to mute microphones and or turn off people's video to minimize distractions. Please remember to state your name every time you speak for the benefit of those listening remotely. For those using Zoom, somewhere on your screen you will see a choice to toggle between speaker and gallery view. Speaker view shows the active speaker and gallery view will tile all of the meeting participants. All motions will need to be stated clearly. After a motion is made and seconded, the chair will call on board members individually to provide their vote. Mr. Chair, you will then need to announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote. When public when public comment is sought on an item, individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise your hand feature. Windows and Mac users can access this feature through the participants button at the bottom of their screen. Android and iPhone users can access this feature through the more button located at the bottom right hand corner of their screen. For those calling in by phone, you may dial star nine. Individuals will be called upon by name and the order in which they appear on the meeting host screen. When you are called on, please unmute your listening device and state your name before speaking. The chair will then call for in-person public comment for those without access to technology items. Staff present will direct you to the podium to speak follow social following social distancing and safety protocols. And the regular three-minute time limit will apply. Thank you. Um, Chair, you're, you're muted. I was following the instructions. <laughs> okay, I'm going to call the roll and then we'll uh, have public comment. So Edith Guppy. I'm here. Cole Brown. 
Shannon Reed. Here. Shannon Ori. Christina Gentry. Here. Yeah, okay. Rebecca Buford. Sarah Waters. Here. Erica Zimmerman. Here. <laughs> Dana Ortiz. Ron Gacious. Present. Thomas Howe. Present. Uh, Paul Newsom. Here. And Monty Soka here. So I believe we have a quorum. You want me to? Is it okay if I take this off? Oh, yeah. Continue on. Far enough apart. Get to my agenda here. We're far enough apart. So at this point, I would uh, open up the floor to public comment. Do we have any anyone at the off in the uh, anyone in person there to comment? This is Leah Roseland uh, with the City of Lawrence. No, there's nobody present for public comment. Okay. Do we have anyone raising their hand? This is Leah Roseland, Chair. It looks like we do have one person raising their hand. Is that Gabby? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Okay. okay, Gabby, you have the floor for a moment. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. My name is Gabby Boyle. I'm the Chair of the Sexual Violence Prevention Workgroup. Um, I come to you today uh, to provide some supplemental data to the um, Sexual Violence Prevention Workgroup position statement that's on the agenda. Um, I have like kind of two pieces of data that I thought were interesting and maybe useful to this conversation. The first one is pulled from a spreadsheet of rental licenses the city of Lawrence provided that shares like um, the licensee's name, the property and the amount of units. Um, so <clears throat> oftentimes doing this work, I think you all probably hear too that um, the majority of landlords in Lawrence um, are smaller mom and pop landlords. And I wanted to um, provide some data to contextualize this. So from that spreadsheet, 50% um, of uh, licensees, landlords, property managers owned only one unit. Um, and the majority of landlords in Lawrence um, do manage less than five units. However, um, those units only represent 5% of the total units that were, uh, you know, listed on this spreadsheet. Um, the majority of units are managed by a very small pool of landlords, 48 property managers, landlords, um, companies, etc. Uh, licensed nearly 52% of all available units that were represented. So that's 3% of property managers who own um, or manage or license over half of the rental housing stock in Lawrence. Um, the other piece of data that I wanted to share is from the uh, available properties list that the Housing Authority releases every month or, or every other month. Um, so for the month of May, there were 119 units listed that were leasing May, June, July, and August. So that's like the available summer housing stock. 80% um, of these units indicated that they do not work with tenants who use Section 8 vouchers. 20% um, said that they would or that they would consider it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, over half do not work with tenants with a felony record at all. 44% again indicated that this was a case-by-case -case decision. And then the majority of units um, indicated that they would work with tenants who have eviction histories um, on a case-by-case -case basis. So as a tenant, to me, hearing case-by-case -case basis means navigating multiple applications that have invisible standards that feel really um, arbitrary or obtuse, not transparent, and have a lot of potential to be informed by bias. 
Um, also of note is that 115 of those units, so everyone except for four units, um, had a minimum credit score requirement of typically 650 um, or a minimum income requirement that um, you know, the, the tenant had to make three times the rent. Um, and tenants who did not meet those requirements may be able to be accommodated, but would have to pay a larger security deposit. So I think I've been hearing anecdotally from a lot of housing service providers that their clients are able to find housing that accepts their voucher, um, their rental assistance, works with them on eviction or, or criminal histories, um, and then are denied because they do not make minimum income um, or like adequate income, or they do not have an adequate credit score. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I wish I could share more of this um, bountiful data that I've been uh, you know, aggregating, but hopefully that helps inform the conversation you all will have today. Thank you. Thank you, Gabby. That was great information. I appreciate you putting that together and presenting it so concisely for us. Uh, and that will play into our conversation today. Thank you. Um, are there any other comments? Leah, do we have anybody raising their hand that you see? This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. No, I don't see anybody else, Chair. Okay, so sorry, this is Monty Soka, Chair of Affordable Housing. I've been failing to announce myself. Um, okay, so with that, I'm going to close the public portion of this. Do I have any board members that would like to make any comments before we start the meeting? Okay, oh, Ron, I see Ron Gacious. Uh, Ron Gacious, uh, Chamber Representative on AHAB Board. Um, in reviewing the agenda, I thought an item was brought up by a board member towards the end of last month's meeting asking that we start reviewing unutilized items in the toolbox or at least review those items in the toolbox. Is there a plan to put that on a future agenda? Uh, Ms. Monty Soka, Chair. Ron, uh, there is. Um, we looked at the agenda, uh, Lee and I went over the agenda uh, earlier this month, and there was just a lot on it today, mm -hmm. to even try to get through in the time we have. So we uh, basically decided to push that back maybe a month. Next month doesn't look quite so uh, so full. That's all right. So we, okay, we do plan you. to come back to that. All right. Any other comments? Seeing none, I'm gonna we're gonna move on to the month uh, approving the minutes from May 10th, 2021. I would be looking for comments or a motion. Yeah, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. I move to approve the minutes of the May meeting. Okay, I have a motion. Do I have a second? Sarah Waters, University of Kansas, second. Second. Great. Sarah Waters, second. Uh, any comments or questions? Okay, seeing none, I'm going to call a roll for a vote to approve the minutes. Edith Guppy. I abstain. I was not present. Okay, Christina Gentry. I approve. Sarah Waters. Approve. Ron Gacious. Approve. Thomas Howe. Did we lose Thomas? We must have lost Thomas. Okay. Paul Newsom. Uh, Mr. Chair, I am here. 
I, oh. and I approved. Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. All news <laughs> uh, Abstain from absence. Okay. Shannon Reed. Um, I guess abstain from absence also, but while I'm called on, I, if we reviewed the whole meeting on video. You don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to abstain because okay. you're absent. You could have reviewed the documents or the video. Yep, I, I did both, so I'll go ahead and vote to approve. Thanks, Chair. Erica Zimmerman. Approve. Monty Sokup, approve. So, according to my count, motion passes seven, four, two abstentions. Okay, thank you. We will move on to uh, review the monthly financial report. I'm assuming Danny is going to do that. Uh, good morning, uh, Danielle Bushcutter, oh, uh, yeah, Budget and Strategic Initiatives Administrator. One of us, will, one of us will get it. Um, so I, I will go briefly over the financial report with you all this morning, um, and then would be happy to answer any questions. Um, starting on the revenue side. Um, through the month of May, we have uh, just under $755,000 in uh, revenue in the um, housing trust fund. And on the expense side, um, no changes from last month. Um, still have the $450,000 in expenditures from the 2020 um, awards that were approved late in the year. Um, on a positive note, on the sales tax side, um, in the month of May, our collections were just under $90,000, which um, so far this year has been our highest um, month, um, and it does put us uh, a little bit ahead of our budget. Um, I feel like this um, report out fluctuates year every month. Um, as, as we've mentioned, sales tax can be um, somewhat volatile, but this is a really positive um, indicator um, of where sales tax has been. So I just kind of wanted to highlight um, that that was the highest collection that we've seen so far um, this year, um, and that um, leads to some some positive outlook. So um, with that, we're uh, just ahead of where we are on the budget side for revenues. And um, with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions that you all may have. Okay, it's Monty Sokup, Chair. Go ahead. I, I, I have a, I have so, a Which just has to do with the that small differential between it seems that we have gotten some revenue in June already. Where does that come from? Uh, Danielle Bushcutter, uh, Budget and Strategic Initiatives Administrator. Um, there is a little bit of additional um, interest income that we have received so far in the month of June. And that just really has to do when we um, go through and do um, our cost allocation on um, interest income earned. So there's a little bit of, of money in June for that already. Uh, but the bulk of the, the revenue here is, is sales tax, and we have not received that collection yet. Thank you. Ron, go ahead. Uh, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative on AHAB. Um, my question is, what part of the $765,000 balance in the trust fund is encumbered or obligated by any grant decisions we've made in the past? Uh, Danielle Bushcutter, Budget and Strategic Initiatives Administrator. Um, we'll go through kind of that full review. I don't have that number in front of me uh, with, with this report. We'll have that full review, though, when you take a look at uh, the NOFA for your next um, 
um, meeting because typically in that NOFA we identify the dollars that we have you know available and, and that you all want to allocate so um, I'd have to go back and, and, and pull that I don't have that right in front of me but we uh, I, I'd like that number for the next meeting absolutely Danielle Bush cut a budget and strategic initiatives administrator administrator we can certainly do that uh, Monty Sucup Chair, Ron, I had the same question because as I read through the NOFA draft NOFA, it's you know the number's four hundred fifty thousand, and that doesn't quite align in my books mm -hmm. anyway. So mm -hmm. I had the same question. So um, okay, are there any other questions on the monthly financial report? Okay, um, do we need to approve or anything that, or is that just a report? Uh, Danielle Bush, Cutter Budget and Strategic Initiatives Administrator. It is just a report, so there's nothing for you to, okay, to approve. Great. Okay, thank you. Okay, so uh, the next item on the agenda is to discuss uh, the sexual violence prevention work group uh, position statement, which we obviously received some supplemental data on today. Um, so they had made uh, obviously came last time and, and presented this information and so this is a follow-up to that and uh i guess what i would be looking for is anybody's thoughts how do you think we should move forward uh i have some ideas um i'm happy to talk about but i'd like to give other people an opportunity first if, if anybody wants uh has something so i'm going to open the floor for that Okay, so I, I don't see any, so I'm gonna, uh, uh, I spent some time uh, as well as uh, Leah did, uh, and actually we had some conversation about that. Um, so uh, there are several things that, that come out of that letter that I think maybe we should take action on. And um, I think the starting place for that, they pointed out several different policies and things that other cities are doing to eliminate potentially uh, discriminating uh, practices in the leasing operation. And we heard about some of those, you know, like credit scores being used to eliminate people, people needing three times, you know, the income, uh, you know, the rental, rental income to, to be even considered and some of those things. So I'm what I'm wondering is if we should talk, start talking about forwarding to the commission uh, some kind of fair housing policy that would address multiple uh, things, multiple items uh, that we think are uh, being used to screen people um, that maybe are not fair. Um, so we'd be talking about some kind of screening regulations uh, and in that letter, they provided some great links to some other cities that have uh, policies and uh, draft policies in some cases um, that start to lay out some of these things. One of them, obviously, is source of income, uh, you know, sexual orientations in there. Uh, also, that again, the, the three things that Gabby pointed out, which were the, the credit score being an issue and um, also that you know three times the income is a, is a huge deal so i guess i would like your thoughts and when we when they the commission and it's later on our agenda but when the commission uh had their uh 
discussion regarding uh, affordable housing, one thing that came out is that they certainly pointed out that they would like us to be forwarding to them, you know, some policy uh, policy things to consider. So I think there's a great opportunity and there's a great uh, you know start of a resource here for us to to start a conversation around that. So with that, does anybody have any comments, thoughts on that? So this is Christina Gentry, um, person receiving or previously received housing assistance. Um, I find it very discouraging that there's so much discretion given to the property owners and landlords as far as, as it is case by case and how you are um, really, really taxed to advocate for yourself on a part of being and holding a Section 8 voucher or um, having any other negative rental history um, that could have been and probably more than likely if you received a Section 8 voucher, you have gone through the combing through of how many years ago those rental histories or negative rental histories could have affected your ability to be a future potential strong renter. Um, so hearing that things have not changed since um, I held my Section 8 voucher in my hand, uh, a little bit over five years ago, less than seven years ago, is a little discouraging. Um, and so uh, the discretion that's been placed in the hands of landlords and um, others in our community, as far as being able to rent out homes, um, brings back to mind a conversation we had about making income a protected class. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would not just uh, make a comment about how that is very difficult. Um, it seems like it's still very difficult to have to also advocate on the half, uh, improving yourself to be a worthy tenant, uh, even though you've gone through the ringer uh, to make sure that you have been and done all of the things that you should be doing. So uh, this is not more, this is more of just like a comment, not not something that we could move to action, but just to make a comment in that space, um, because what Gabby spoke to really spoke to how it was difficult for me as well uh, to be a, a strong renter, be considered a strong renter, even though I had already done all the things that would make me appear to be on paper. So, I mean, what I what I take from the small thing, soak up chair. What I take from your comment, Christina, is that you're in favor of moving forward with some kind of fair housing policy that we could work on, and then forward. Is that fair? Absolutely. This is Christina Gentry, um, person receiving or has been receiving housing assistance. Right. I was making a comment, and I'm absolutely in favor of us moving the actions that you have spoken to, Monty. So uh, I and also deciding um, what those actions look like. Yes, thank you. Right. So, okay, great. Thank you, Christina. So one thing I heard was income uh, becomes a protected class or whatever that means in legalese, you know, that we're just going to use general terms. Uh, I think that's what I was getting to is source of income. Um, and then the screening, uh, I think we need I think there are, there are other cities uh, out there that have some of this kind of language in place that we could start uh, asking maybe staff to 
to look at and put together some ideas that are probably workable uh, for the screen screening requirements. And that, that would be like, like the, the three times income, credit score, you know, using credit scores to eliminate people uh, and those kind of things. So um, I guess I would ask, or I'm not hearing any feedback, but if, uh, are we in favor of asking Leah to kind of do some research, present at a future meeting, some ideas uh, for this kind of policy that we could then discuss internally with policy and, you know, proposed policy in front of us? Um, so the simple answer for me, Monty, this Shannon Reed, Douglas County um, Commission, uh, the simple answer is yes, I, you know, to echo both yours and Christina's comments. Um, and Christina, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and how much self-advocacy and tenacity is required in that process of individuals and how that shows up in a variety of different ways based on your rental history, like you mentioned, um, your race, your sexual orientation. You know, there's so many things. What what your income on paper looks like um, and whether it's a voucher or not, and maybe you receive non-traditional payroll income um, or community supported income. And so I think that those are, I think it's a really important policy decision and, you know, to hear Gabby's kind of supplemental data um, gathered is upsetting, I, I think, um, to, learn how, you know, just how large the percentage of landlords and property owners that are unwilling to work with Section 8 vouchers, which is this heavily vetted process that requires a lot of time and energy and self-advocacy and self-disclosure and kind of tenacity on tenants part, uh, you know, individual parts anyway to begin that process. Um, and then to be awarded a, a voucher, um, the next part should be simple, but instead we see people in our community seeking extensions of that uh, and, and, at, and getting extensions from housing authority to have longer amounts of time to search for housing on those vouchers because it becomes so difficult. And that prolongs perhaps the, the homelessness or the acute risk of homelessness that they may be experiencing because they're unable to find housing of their own. So I think that um, policy recommendations are an important step for us to take as a community and that um, will give the opportunity to provide some accountability measures um, and continuity and practices across Lawrence. Um, and, you know, I'm, uh, I'm encouraged to see that Kansas City um, has done some of that and that they are such a close community. So I'm interested in if anybody here at Ahab or any of the um, city's uh, staff specifically have connection to or can make a connection to some of the staff in Kansas City, Missouri that worked on that um, ordinance and that specifically in in spite of that statewide, um, I'm kind of losing my words without going and pulling up the document, but um, it, it's a similar situation. So it seems like there's maybe a lot to learn there that help us craft a next step. So I'm really supportive of that. Thank you, Shannon. That, that is good. And we, we can reach out to Kansas City, Missouri, uh, which also brings up another potential policy topic 
because as you probably know, Kansas City, Missouri passed uh, some kind of ordinance or something that when you are building a new apartment, there's a certain percentage of affordable housing that you have to uh, construct as a part of that. And that's been fairly controversial, and I don't know if we can go there or not, but that is certainly something that we could think about, you know. Um, I know in Kansas City, Missouri, there's been quite a rush of people to get projects submitted for planning before that went into effect. So you know it's having an impact, uh, you know, good or bad, I don't know, we'll, we'll, but time will tell, right? Uh, but at least they'll put affordable housing on, on the ground. Um, so, and with a conversation we've had with the Builders Association about community benefit on greenfield development, you know, that is certainly would be a community benefit, I would think, and, and one way to uh, allow them to, you know, open up some new ground. So that's a conversation we might also want to add to the list of policy. I don't think it's the same fair, what I would call fair housing issue it's a little bit different issue but it's another thing that we can certainly start uh to explore um if, if that if the board likes that edith i see every hand up. yeah uh i i am certainly interested in um policies that will uh lessen discrimination um i i'm also interested in um the difference between the the landlords that own the vast majority of the housing and those mom and pop, you know, people that own one unit or two units. And wondering um, those folks that own one or two units, uh, what is preventing them? Or is there some uh, information that tells us that they are not uh, willing to take Section 8 vouchers? And is and why? Because it would seem to me that that would be a very secure source of income for them, very dependable. And are they unwilling to take Section 8 vouchers and why? Do we have some data on that? And um, what is the balance? Because um, I do very much want there to be um, non-discrimination, uh, um, and on the other hand, those mom and pop folks also depend on income for their um, living. Um, and so how do we balance those competing needs? Um, so as we begin to put these policies in place, that I think are very important policies uh, and the competing interests. How do we make sure that we are benefiting um, all parties and um, helping the most vulnerable people? Because I think that's important. Thank you, Edith, Monty, Sokup, Chair. Uh, I think that's, a, I, I think it's, to me, having worked on the landlord side of the rental operation at times, um, I think uh, when you do, a, when we do a policy, if we get a fair housing policy, we're not going to have a near as great an impact on the mom and pa. Um, 
industry. And I say that because the when I've been involved at that level as a small, very small operator, one or two units, um, I know the units we had never came to the market per se. They A lot of them were around the university or whatever, and we never had a vacancy. We never had to put a sign out in the yard and say, you know, we need it. We need a renter because they were continually rented, uh, you know, without by word of mouth before they never hit the market. So I think the impact potentially that you have, whether it's, they're not going to, they're not reviewing, you know, they're not going to review applications. They never have that kind of, that doesn't happen near as often as you do on the major operators where you have a big apartment building and they have, you know, 300 units mm. and they have a hundred of them empty, you know, every summer or whatever. So, because um, I also see the, the impact that, you know, that can have to a person operating one unit, uh, you know, for them to have something go wrong with their unit, if something did go wrong, it's a, it's you know a hundred percent of their income, not one two hundredth percent of their income, right? Uh, so they have a lot higher risk level, also. Uh, so I also get as a landlord wanting to be cognizant of who you're renting to, right? There's a risk you're taking, uh, certainly, and uh, at that level, it's a little more difficult, but. Uh, that's amazing. I found it amazing that three percent of three percent of the owners own fifty-two percent of the units in Lawrence. That's an amazing number. Um, so, all right. Are there any other comments? It's Christina Gentry. I think I'm raising my hand there. Yeah. Christina Gentry, a person receiving or has received uh, housing subsidies. Um, a, a big part of this conversation uh, is is missing. Well, we're missing three very important people um, who could contribute to this conversation. Uh, Dana Ortiz, Shannon, and um, Rebecca Buford, who can give us a little bit more of the, the other side of what that looks like as far as for the homeowners and the property owners. Um, one big thing to also note is that there are requirements of homeowners uh, to have a standard of their um, facility be up to code. Um, there needs to be something that they have to check boxes off of. And it's it's pretty intensive and it's it's very directive in making sure that that home is safe. Uh, so we, we're, we're thinking about the tenants and their inability to maybe uh, show a face of, of um, I guess, confidence. Um, but we're not thinking about also the liabilities that are incurred with a property owner who can't keep their house up to code, who is one of the property owners who are um, renting out a very um, horrible unit, a horrible house that they won't keep up to code because it's difficult to manage that because it's expensive. So, so let's also think of the other side where there's the responsibility um, is also on the homeowner to, to make sure that their house is suitable. Um, and maybe that's a problem uh, for some people to do or for some homeowners to do. Um, and that's a reality as well. So I just wanted to also put that out there that we're talking about the people who have the vouching um, and vouchers in their hand. But we need to also talk about the homeowners who are not able to um, grant a, a livable environment, um, who, who may not want to go through all of the 
um, nuances and, and all of the things that are involved in keeping up the um, housing to be to receive the voucher in itself. Uh, Monte, so thank you, Christina. That's that's a good point, and I think also the point is the person that is at risk for housing also doesn't want to report the landlord for fear of getting evicted. <laughs> you know, to make the repairs. Sometimes, I mean, it's a, it's a catch twenty two in some senses for the for the tenant. You know, if they report it, then they're not renewed. You know, so uh, Shannon, I think you had your hand up. Yeah, uh, Shannon Reed, Douglas County. Um, I, thanks for bringing that up, Christina. That reminds me that I'm curious about, um, I'm kind of curious to hear from City of Lawrence code enforcement um, officers and like maybe there's data, but also anecdotally what, um, well, I don't know, I, I guess I'm curious about a lot of it, kind of what their process is for responding to code violations and specifically the, you know, um, the egregious life and safety issues that um, may not, you know, there is not necessarily any oversight and unless it is reported um, and somebody, somebody knows how to report it and um, decides that that's worth the, the risk or their um, precious energy, you know, in, in the midst of life um, that, that I'm curious about that. And um kind of what maybe our code enforcement officers are seeing or responding to and and maybe there's some ideas there about how to strengthen ordinances and and maybe work with code enforcement to think about how we can kind of create some accountability and oversight measurements to um to be able to help educate and support property owners and manage some accountability around property owners maintaining um, safe housing for the people that they're renting to. Um, Cause I do think that that is a real issue. And I have anecdotally in my work as an advocate and, you know, supporting folks through navigation of section eight vouchers or even without section eight. Um, but, and trying to convince landlords that, um, becoming a, a landlord that accepts Section 8 vouchers and goes through that bit of vetting process uh, is worthwhile. And um, it's a non-starter conversation for some landlords. And I think that that can be telling and it makes me um, concerned about what types of life and safety code issues we might be seeing through rental properties specifically. I guess that's mostly a comment and maybe a request to staff for some future follow-up on kind of, um, or maybe a, a small presentation from code enforcement about anything they think is relevant to that issue. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, Chair and uh, Board, is that something you would be interested in us trying to get on the July agenda? This Monty Sokup chair, I think it is. But I would, you know, a short presentation of what what kind of basics of the policy are, and then what kind of enforcement is done. Because I know there is. I mean, having like I said, having been a landlord, um, I know you can call and get an inspection of your house. Um, you know, and they'll tell you what you have to do to bring it up to be licensable. I, I don't know what 
the enforcement of that normally looks like if the owner doesn't call and ask for that. Um, so I don't know if there's a regular process, you know, every three years, your house automatically gets inspected or whatever. It'd be interesting to know what that looks like and to know what that means, you know, for renters. So I think, yeah, five or 10 minute presentation on that would be great. Everybody agree with that? Okay, having that, Susan. Yeah, Ron, go ahead. Um, Ron Gacious, uh, Chamber Representative on the Advisory Board. Um, Mr. Chairman, I'm in favor of doing whatever we can within the limits of Kansas law to try to create um, a, a new protected class uh, around source of income. Um, but I'm mindful that all of the other prior efforts to create protected classes have taken decades. Um, and and um, in cons relatively conservative states like Kansas, um, property rights advocates are very well established. And, and if we get out in front of most of the other communities in Kansas with pressing um, um, rental managers and owners uh, with another, uh, with a new, excuse me, with a new protected class, I think we'll very likely have a, a backlash in the state house. Um, I'm all for, you know, trying to assert the city's uh, authority in whatever ways are possible. Um, but I've seen these efforts, uh, these types of property rights uh, conflicts uh, in the past. And um, uh, there's a lot of established law on the side of the property owner. In, in a state like Kansas. So while we pursue uh, a policy in support of a protected class or urging the recognition of a protected class or whatever that specific proposal ends up, I would hope that we would also address or encourage the city to address some of these other mitigating factors. I was disturbed, frankly, when I heard Gabby say that even when folks jump up through all of these other hoops with landlords, um, you know, that they find someone who will accept a prior criminal conviction or will accept a prior eviction or, may, or somebody will accept a, a, a Section 8 voucher, then they still don't qualify because they've got a crappy credit score or fall short on, on the income level. Well, I thought the voucher was because they fell short on the income level, right? So I, you know, someone's gonna have to uh, explain to me why that's a legitimate basis for, uh, for not qualifying uh, a tenant. Um, I, I remember what, two years ago, we had the local credit, consumer credit counseling uh, agency in here asking us for funds. And they were arguing uh, that there's a connection between credit scores and the ability to uh, be housed. Um, so Gabby's comments were kind of like, 
you know, a kick in the shin. I, I didn't think then and I don't think now that the, that the Affordable Housing Trust Fund is the right source of dollars for the credit, consumer credit counseling folks. Uh, but there certainly is more that could be done in that area to help prevent young adults from making bad financial decisions or to assist those who, through no fault of their own, uh, have, have had a credit score crater assist them in rebuilding their credit scores. Uh, you know, there are for-profit services that do that. It, it, I think there's a, a legitimate, a very well-established legitimate need for not-for-profit services in this area also. The folks that need the services the most can't afford them. Okay, thank you, Ron. Um, it's interesting your comments because the uh, uh, sexual violence prevention position statement had links to several other cities where they do, they had the same issues and they were able to craft language uh, that maybe didn't create a protected class per se, but said also you can't uh, use that as a criteria uh, for eliminating. So I think. Uh, I think we can work and look at some of those things and maybe not step on quite as many toes as, as uh, we could if we, you know, outright went for a protected class kind of situation. So there's, uh, I guess I'm still in favor of working that direction, mm -hmm. recognizing the environment we're pushing forward in. So appreciate your comments. Okay, is there any other uh, discussion on this topic? Um, what I'm leaving this topic with is we're going to ask uh, Leah and whoever else she can round up to uh, um, come back with some kind of recommended language or uh, recommended things around these topics we've talked about so that we have something more concrete to look at and formulate a recommendation to the uh, city council. Okay, seeing none, I am going to move on to the next item. Uh, we're going to discuss the Affordable Housing Advisory Board attendance. Um, do we have someone uh, from the staff that's going to talk about the policy, the attendance policy, or do you want me to go into that? This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, I'm happy to bring up the bylaws and read from them. I have the attendance record that I can um, note, but if you wanna go ahead and lead the conversation and I'll pull up the bylaws if we want the specific language. Okay, well, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna summarize what the situation is. So um, our policy basically says if you miss a certain number, and I think it's three, meetings unexcused that you will be essentially removed from the board. Um, so we have a couple of uh, people in that situation, uh, one of which, uh, well, we've had uh, Cole Brown who has not been in attendance for about six meetings. We've been trying to reach Cole, have not been able to reach him. Uh, so what I'm going to suggest that we do is we basically put him on public notice at this meeting that if he doesn't uh, respond or we can't get a hold of him in the next month that our next meeting will actually remove him. 
I'm saying that because we haven't been able to get a hold of him to discuss the situation. We're not sure what's going on. So I just felt like we shouldn't just kick him off the board without some kind of public notice. And then uh, Christina Gentry has missed three meetings, but we had a problem with our list serve and she wasn't getting appropriate notices. So I'm going to suggest that uh, we forgive or two of those uh, where she was not getting the notifications from the city uh, about the things, the meetings and, and events, and um, basically put her back of one unexcused absence uh, so that she would not be removed. Um, because I think that was partly our, an issue on our side of uh, so that's kind of where I am on, or what I'm suggesting on the two uh, attendees that we have that have uh, are outside the policy, I guess, at this point. Um, are there any objections to that recommendation? Okay. Sure. I, I do not have a, uh, I do, this is Sarah Waters, University of Kansas. I don't have an objection um, to that. I agree with that. But I did have a question kind of along the same lines. I, I guess I'm not clear on what an unexcused versus an excused absence is. Um, so if that could just be clarified, and if excused means you let them know in advance versus the unexcused, I just don't understand that completely. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Yeah, to have an excuse absence, you simply need to notify the staff liaison in advance of the meeting. Thank you. I thought so, but I wanted to clarify. And I, am I, am I muted or no? You're okay. Uh, so Thomas Howell, Lawrence Board of Realtors representative. And while I uh, understand your position and will go along with that, I believe that when you join a public service board, you should understand what the policies are and the policies and the schedule has been pretty set since the start. So I will go along with your recommendation there. However, with the proviso or with the, uh, uh, the position that if you're going to serve the community, you have a responsibility to understand what the framework for that is. All right, Thomas, thank you for those comments. Um, Hi, this is Christina Gentry, um, person receiving or has been receiving housing assistance. If I could, I feel like um, I should speak a little bit, advocate a little bit for myself. I, I appreciate the board already approving um, the, the movement to keep me. Um, I do wanna speak um, on the, the two absences uh, that include me not receiving the emails. So for the two absences that um, I did not receive the emails, um, it was in no way, and I do apologize for not being here, it is in no way to speak on the lesser prioritization that I give this board in my seat um, that accompanies this board and, and contributes to this board. Um, I will give detail that speaks a little bit to if the months that I was working um, at the Lawrence Douglas County Public, I'm sorry, yes, Public Health, and our Monday through Friday push to get vaccines into our community became a little bit overwhelming. Um, I'm working remotely, but we, as a whole health department, had closed down our building so that we were able to 
um, make sure that our community was vaccinated. So my community input didn't didn't come up and show up here for the monthly meetings for those two times um, and not in a way that was not speaking to my input into the community. Um, I was working in the community, um, or I'm sorry, the, the mass vaccine clinics at the fairgrounds those days. And so um, life got a little bit jumbled for me. So if I wasn't given an email that said I need to be here, um, I was going to be where my community needed me to be, which was at the fairgrounds, making sure that our community um, received their vaccines. And as a result of all of the unified command efforts and um, including our health department, we've been able to keep the position of number one vaccinated county in Kansas. So that's a pretty big deal. It's 99,000 of us, and we've made sure that everyone's received a vaccine who has um, wanted to have one. We're also still doing mm -hmm. our small vaccine clinics on the weekends. Um, but I just wanted to say that um, and speak to that because absolutely, if I signed up to do something, I'm going to see it through. And I consider this board to be a very important board to me uh, and my contribution to it to also be important to me. Uh, so I appreciate the board giving me another chance to sit here and to speak on the issues that are, um, are surround affordable housing and the um, advisory that I can give it. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to continue to serve. Uh, Monty, so good, Chair. Thank you, Christina. Appreciate that. And your work at the vaccination clinic as well. Uh, also important work, certainly. Okay. Um, I guess I would ask staff, do we need a motion or anything on that? Or do, is that sufficient direction that we're in agreement that that's what we're going to do? This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. So just so I'm understanding, um, the board would like to put out a public notice for coal and then um, take action in July. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. And that could... Uh, I don't know what form that public notice has to be, certainly minutes for this meeting and then continuing to try to reach him is probably, in my opinion, sufficient. Um, is that satisfactory? This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Yes, thank you. Did you have a... Uh, and am, and am I unmuted again? Good, Thomas Howell, oh. our uh, Orange Board of Realtors representative. Oh. It looks like you're muted still. No, I think it's okay. Oh, it's okay? Yeah. Monty, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, okay. Thomas Howell, Lawrence Porter, Realtors Representative. So uh, what happens if coal comes in July? Well, I think we can, at that point, we can address his record and he will be here to uh, potentially talk about it uh, I hate to guess what his circumstances are, so I'd like to have let him have an opportunity uh, for us to at least hear that. Should he um, did something extraordinary have happened through the pandemic? I think this is a different time than normal, and uh, given his uh, potential living situations, I just think we have to have a little bit of flexibility. If he doesn't have doesn't show up or doesn't have something that we think you know, is a reasonable uh, reason for having missed, then I think we vote him off the board. Mr. Chamber, uh, Mr. Chairman, 
Yeah, go ahead, Ron. Sorry. Uh, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative on the Advisory Board. Um, so slightly different question. Could we could we have someone find out if coal is okay? Right. You know, I think I think the effort should be to, to, to reach out and talk to this guy to make sure he's okay, because it has been a tough last 14 months and and not everybody's weathering it really well. So, you know, attendance at our meetings, one thing, Let, let's make sure Cole's okay too, okay? Uh, Ron, Monty Soto Chair, Ron, I agree. And uh, we'll, we'll do that. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the city. Uh, just to clarify, we've reached out several times. So I've attempted phone calls and attempted emails and absolutely his health and well-being is of the utmost concern and unfortunately have not heard back from him, but we'll definitely make one last effort to contact him. Okay. All right. Uh, we're going to move on then. Uh, we're ready to talk about the uh, NOFA, the next upcoming NOFA. Um, so I guess Leah or Danny, are you going to talk about that, the NOFA and then we'll. Is that the plan here? This is Leah Rislin, Affordable Housing Administrator. So we wanted to just start the discussion for the 2021 NOFO by having the board review the materials and the process for the last NOFO, uh, or NOFA, excuse me. Um, so the materials are all attached. And at this point, we're just looking for general feedback, any changes uh, that the board might be interested in seeing, any research that needs to be done, any recommendations or suggestions um, that then we can work on and bring back to the July meeting. Um, so I'm not sure what order you'd like to go in. The materials from the last process are attached um, and we're happy to share screen or bring any of those up if that would be helpful. So does anyone have any, as I'm assuming you've reviewed it, does anyone have any comments? I have some comments, of course. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Ron, go ahead. Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative on the Advisory Board. Um, my, my question is, are we obligated to spend the Housing Trust Fund dollars through this notice of funding availability process, or can we use can we divert from this particular process in making our recommendations to the city commission? For, for example, for example, could, could the city put together um, an RFP asking developers to bring best proposals, best and least expensive proposals to the city for additional funding from the trust fund for affordable housing projects built on what are currently public lands. Uh, this is Monte Soga, Chair. I'm not sure I'm the one to answer that, but I essentially that's what our NOFA does in my no, opinion. No, it doesn't. We haven't made any public lands available 
for any okay. affordable housing projects. Okay. The city, the city's not offered any underlying. Uh, you know, have we given up a square foot yet? Okay, I, I agree with that, but we could put that in the NOFA that this, you know, if we had, if we have that, we could put in the NOFA whatever we want. Last time we designated, we wanted 33% in non-capital projects and 67 in capital. So I think we can put in the NOFA whatever we want if we have the opportunity, if we have a piece of land or, or those things. So uh, certainly I think we can tailor the NOFA to whatever, which not significantly different than an RFB, but. Ron, is your, uh, this is Edith Guffey, uh, member at large. Ron, is your question an attempt to um, our being more aggressive and uh, rather than just waiting for projects to come to us, uh, being more aggressive to say, these are the kinds of projects we want or being more aggressive uh, in um, searching out projects. You know, there's been the, not the, the complaint, but the assumption that we're sitting back waiting for people to offer projects to us rather than saying, looking and seeing, this is what we want. Um, and this is where we want it built. Developers make a proposal. There's, there's a difference there. And is that what you're going after? Is that what you're reaching for? Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Yes. You know, we've got five broad goals that address affordable housing. And, and we've not prioritized those particularly. Um, we've, we've divided those two, those five broad goals into two large buckets capital improvements, building, and everything else, uh, short-term housing support and services. Um, but we're completely at the whim of what uh, for-profit and not-for-profit developers are, are able to bring us or want to bring us at any particular time. So I don't know that we're I don't know that we're achieving what appear, what I think it are our most important priorities. And, and I don't know that this process helps to facilitate the utilization of public lands um, for uh, affordable housing conversion. Uh, I, I, I believe one of the things that we should do is engage city commissioners and city staff in a discussion about making available some of uh, the green space at the edge of a couple of our large public parks. Um, and, and no, I'm not suggesting that we do anything to South Park, but we've got at least a handful of other green spaces in the community that are pretty darn good size that could easily accommodate uh, one additional street, or at least housing on one side of one additional street, um, and and address some of our very uh, pressing uh, needs for additional rental space that will accept 
Section 8 uh, vouchers. And if, you know, if, if, if we can get these built in a way so that they can fold into the, uh, the housing inventories that our not-for-profits are responsible for or somehow put a permanent um, uh, uh, limitation on them, they stay affordable, then I think we're spending our dollars in a, in, in a really good place. Um, but but this just kicking back with the NOFA and waiting to see what people bring us without the city bringing anything to the table except the trust fund dollars, I think is is limiting us from from um, uh, producing as as much gains in the affordable housing space as we can. Thank you, Ron. I think that's a, a good comment. I um, I know that uh, Jeff and some uh, Jeff Crick at the city and others have been looking at potential city lands that could be um, utilized, like you're saying. I don't know exactly where we are on that conversation as to what's ready. Maybe uh, Diane or Jeff could comment to that situation. I can comment, Diane Stoddard, Assistant City Manager. So we are working on a map um, inventory of uh, some of the properties that we may be suggesting um, as possibilities for affordable housing uh, use. Um, as you might imagine, from time to time, there are certain restrictions on certain properties and we need to be knowledgeable about what those are. Um, but we'll be providing uh, that information to this group and the city commission. And then from there, my recommendation would be that, uh, yes, I think that Mr. Gaitchis is right, um, where um, uh, we put out a request for proposals related to a certain piece of property or properties that specify what it is that we're looking for or hoping to achieve and leverage that property up along with any other tools that the city might be able to utilize and apply. We do already have a number of tools in the city's toolkit that does help with housing. Um, you know, and in fact, we have been matching um, the use of those tools with uh, some of the affordable housing dollars. Um, you know, when you start to put the tools together with land or some of the dollars, then um, you might be able to really help make the difference between a project happening or not, not happening. So I do completely agree that that is a way for the board and the city to be more proactive with regard to what it is that we might want to see. Um, the, the notice of funding availability does also provide, you know, the broad opportunity for anyone to express their interest in the use of the dollars, in which case you might get some broad proposals that perhaps you, um, you know, you aren't even realizing that there's a need for. Uh, so it just really depends on what it is the, the uh, the this board and the city commission want to do with the targeted funds and what the specific goals might be, you know, for for that particular year. Uh, Monty Sokup, chair. So, Diane, uh, at what point do you think you're you guys would be in a position to come back? You know, maybe it's not in part of this note, but because our timing maybe doesn't work, but what, you know, would we be able to have this conversation 
about what properties might be available, what things you might be able to, like I say, leverage up. Uh, when you get, when will you guys be ready to have that conversation with this group? You think? Yeah, I think that that um, that report could be ready um, uh, next month or uh, or by August, so in the next couple of months here. And I think that. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that is tied to the notice of funding availability. Um, for example, a piece of property may be um, enough for a an entity to bridge a gap to do an affordable housing project alone. So there might, you know, also per perhaps paired with some of the other city tools that we have that don't cost any cash out of this particular trust fund. So I don't see them as um, um, as necessarily having to be tied together. So you could do a notice of funding availability um, and do this and, you know, have, have these things on some different calendars. But I think um, um, sometimes it might help us to hone in the exact type of proposal, again, knowing um, uh, uh, knowing what the parameters are that the, the the city wants to achieve with a particular piece of property and, you know, maybe having a discussion about whether it's best to have um, individual requests for proposals or sort of a, a group request for proposals on multiple uh, parcels. Okay. Ron, does that get to your, the bottom of your question kind of? Yeah, yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, okay, so we're, yeah, Paul. I, I think that um, Ron's suggestion is excellent to encourage or um, think outside of the box, encourage big thinking. Um, I think it would be best if the city could step forward or whatever um uh, whatever they could offer to put it out there whereas somebody could include in their nofa these big thoughts i think if the city doesn't make it um known that this is a potential land to be used uh, a nofa applicant could be potentially get a lower grade on their project status of where it would be ready to roll and that might hurt their grade but um if it was known to applicants ahead of time, what the city might offer as available that might make them, that might put their grade more on equal playing field. Uh, this is Shan Reed, Douglas County Commissioner. Um, I'm curious with um, the inventory that's being created um, to kind of assess some possibilities. Is that just looking at undeveloped property that could that might be ideal for development and has opportunities or does it also include things like maybe city-owned um, houses or former commercial buildings or I don't know any number of things does it does it include inventory of where there might be structures already that could be rehabbed or, or um, renovated into affordable housing. Diane Stoddard, Assistant City Manager. Um, 
there are only a, a couple of um, cases where we have some property that uh, will have a building that will eventually um, in the either the near future or the next few years uh, probably uh, transition to a different use and therefore um, wouldn't necessarily need to be used by the city anymore. Um, those, um, those I see is maybe a little bit more challenging, although possibilities down the road. What we were trying to do first, which we'll kind of present this this way, is that um, to us anyway, that there's some there's some uh, particular properties that that are um, maybe uh, would be easier uh, logistically to be able to develop because they are currently not developed. And also um, properties that currently aren't part of a designated park. Um, obviously, if we go the route of designating an existing park um, or you know, utilizing a piece of an existing park, um, th there will at least be some people who experience some loss with that. Um, so our thought is that there might be some properties that, um, that might be a little bit easier to develop um, initially that, that are currently not designated as such. So um, as we prepare that report, uh, we're kind of looking to prioritize some of those pieces of property uh, that don't currently have an existing use. Okay. All right. Uh, okay, Monty Sokup, Chair. Any other thoughts on the directions on the NOFA? All right, I'm gonna. I've, I've got one thought, and that is on the last NOFA, we created the two buckets of kind of guideline of about a third going to services and two thirds going to capital. Um, were we happy with that split? Is there any adjustment? I think what I think about whether adjustments needed to that split or not. And I think partly that depends on uh, the amount of funding. So um, last time we had $450,000 and it got split basically 150 for services and 300 for in rough numbers uh, for capital. Um, I also think that we know we have a large capital project and most likely uh, um, coming to this that we know is a great project uh, because they submitted last time and pulled, and pulled out because they didn't need the funding in that cycle. So I think we know we have that one large capital project coming. Uh, so do we wanna think about that um, and whether we tailor the NOFA thinking we're probably going to award that unless something better comes in? Go ahead, Ron. Um, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative on the Advisory Board. Um, I think that the size of the funds that are available should influence at least a little bit how much of the dollars that we make available are carved out for vouchers and services. 
And let me give you a, a, a hypothetical to explain what I mean. We, we just we just did a NOFA round with four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, of which I think a third, one fifty, was mm -hmm. earmarked for vouchers and services, and two thirds for capital investment. But that was, I think, the smallest. NOFA grant amount that we've done in the three years that I've been on the advisory board. Um, it sounds like, you know, not, not knowing how much of the current balance is encumbered by past grants, but it sounds like, uh, depending on when we issue this NOFA, if it's not until the fall, we'll have several hundred thousand dollars more than we did this last round. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think right now I would be supportive of a 33-67 split, a, a one-third, two-thirds split between vouchers and services or, and capital improvements if, for example, the balance that we're going to have available for the NOFIS, say, $800,000 or a million dollars. To the extent we've got more money I know needs in all areas are high, but to the extent we have more money, uh, I, at, at some point in time, as the dollar amounts go up, I would like to see a larger percentage of the funds go to capital investment. Mr. Chair, Sarah Waters, University of Kansas. Um, I agree with Ron and what he just said. I also think that in that last NOFA, we didn't, at, at the end, we didn't, at the beginning, I guess I should say, when we had that large capital project, we didn't, we didn't seem to care anymore about what the percentages in the NOFA were, because we did make the decision to give all the funds to that large capital. And so, so I struggle a little bit with this conversation because we don't know what we're going to see. And I think we're going to do what we decide is best at that point. Um, although best laid plans sometimes are good if all things are equal, then we can make a decision there. But second, in that same bucket as everybody else, kind of want to know how much money, kind of want to know out there. We know we've got this large capital probably coming. Um, mm -hmm. But if that one hadn't pulled out, it would have been 100% of the funds had gone to that. And we wouldn't be here saying it was 150000 or 300000 or whatever that breakdown ended up being. So mm -hmm. um, so it's hard, it's hard for me to have this conversation or to think, logically right now about what we'd like. Um, so maybe we should continue discussion. I don't know, but those were my thoughts. Yes, Monty Soto Chair, I agree. And we also have this other thing that kind of mixes in there is if we were to take the NOFA and potentially split, truly split and say we were gonna, you know, uh, Put you know I don't know let's use one hundred fifty thousand dollars on the services side and the whatever else on the capital side. We could essentially create kind of two parallel submittal processes, and then people that we might get some of our service providers back into the discussion because if they're submitting on the service side but not on the capital side, they could sit in on the discussion of the capital projects. <laughs> so, but one one way that's great because we get our service providers back in the conversation, at least some of them. The bad thing is we commit 
to spending, you know, we wouldn't have the option that we had in the last Nova of going, well, we're not going to spend any on that side. Mm -hmm. I have to more or less com commit a little stronger to spending because you don't want people make proposals if we're not going to award something, right? So just a little food for thought. Ron, I saw you put your hand up. Uh, yes, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Um, I, I agree totally with Sarah's comments, too. I mean, it, it, I guess the point I was trying to make is I'm not prepared to say what I think that percentage should be for the next NOFA until we know more about what we've got with the next NOFA. You know, how, how many funds are we going to have available? What, what, what's happened in the community with any other federal funds that have passed through that we really, you know, supposedly we've got some federal funds that are going to be earmarked for affordable housing. And I don't know if, if that's going to be limited to capital investments or if it'll be available for vouchers uh, or if it'll be available for services. But, but we got a lot of information I think we need to gather um, before we put this next NOFA out. Uh, this is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. Um, I think I want to add to this that another piece of information that would be helpful for me, and I'm curious if others agree, is to kind of have a sense of um, the progress on each of those goals. So with two years of funding allocations um, done and three more to go, if I'm right, uh, <laughs> a few more to go, I'm kind of curious um, what progress we've made on each of those five different goals. And so maybe we see that one goal, um, the, the money has gone a long way towards and really um, accomplished kind of a great length of that goal, whereas others may be lagging. I'm kind of curious to see how that looks. This is Edith Guppy, a uh, member at large. And remember, um, we made that decision last time in the midst of the pandemic. It was situation driven. And uh, we're in a different place. And I would, uh, I would not, I, I support Sarah and Ron. I'm not willing to do anything right now. <laughs> sort of look and see where we are when we're there. Okay, Monty, so good, Chair. I, I, you know, that's fair. I'm not, I don't think we're asking for a decision today, but I certainly want people to have it thinking about it because we are going to make that decision in probably the next two months or so. So we are going to get there where we have, you know, the schedule dictates that we get this NOFA out and we're going to have to reach that place. So just- This is Christina Gentry, I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Monty. I didn't mean to cut you off. Christina Gentry, um, member or person receiving or has received housing subsidies. It sounds like uh, a opportunity for us to talk about a retreat um, and to sit down and, and discuss these in the next two months. Does that sound kind of doable? Um, I know we're still doing Zoom for the most part, but maybe um, see a couple of people in spaces and, and we can make that happen. Monty Sugar Chair. I think it's certainly doable. We're gonna to have to do it. <laughs> I don't know if we have a choice, right? Eventually we're gonna to have to uh, do this. I think the only 
the only big advantage I see to splitting it, and I'm not going to advocate either way at this point, but it was the opportunity to, again, get our not-for-profit people back in, potentially back into some of the conversations. Because every time we have one of these, the way the city interprets the conflict of interest, we essentially eliminate all of those people from all of the conversation and we lose the vast majority of our expertise at the table. And I really don't care for that situation. So um, if we were, if it were beneficial for that reason alone to do some kind of split, whether that was, you know, it wouldn't have to be a hard split. It could be, you know, we anticipate spending certain amount or certain amount but allowed us to separate those those processes and get those people back. I guess I I have some uh, desire to do that, but really for that reason. Uh, so think about that as well. I guess in the next month. And uh, Shannon, to to address your question, we do have on our webpage the the dashboard that does talk about. Uh, some of the things the things we've done or projects that are in progress and Jeff's done a great job of uh, keeping that updated and actually uh, reorganizing a little bit of it. Uh, so kudos to him, but uh, that's a good place to go. Somewhere else I saw it in the packet too. I can't remember where I read it, but I did see where our goals and then where we are in relationship to some of those goals and that may have been on the website. Uh, Okay. Thanks for pointing that out. I uh, wondered if I had overlooked it, so I'll go poking around again. You would have had to go find it <laughs> today, probably. Uh, okay. That leads us probably to the funding matrix. Uh, so I guess I, at this point, I don't know if we need to do anything with that, but um, certainly start thinking about that funding matrix because that's been one of the things we've struggled with is we're trying to rate um we're judging very different capital projects with uh you know voucher programs and renovation programs and the, the funding matrix information really doesn't correlate well um so uh i don't know if we want to look at that think about using a different matrix or if we're okay just knowing that those aren't going to match up and it's just additional data um, because we haven't always awarded, you know, the highest scoring projects don't necessarily mean you get the award. Um, so I'm okay with that. I, I'm just not sure that information should be in a, a scored matrix if that's how we're using it. Uh, it's just data points, uh, more like the other uh, information that the staff provides us. So I would like to people think about that or comment on that. I've always struggled with the matrix personally. <laughs> All right. Mr. Chair, this is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. And if you would like, I'm happy to look at other examples um, and bring some alternative matrices to the board for consideration if that would be helpful. Uh, so I think that'd be really helpful. And again, I'm not stuck with a scorable matrix either as much as 
if we gather the data and can com fairly compare, you know, the projects and the goals we're trying to align them with, because, you know, every, I don't know. The idea is to, I mean, to me, the idea is to award the money to the best projects that get us the most bang for our buck um, and meet our goals. So if a matrix helps us do that, fine. If, if not, then I'm not tied to having scored matrix. Uh, okay. Uh, Mr. Chair, one more thing. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. When we were reviewing the materials for the meeting, we also discussed um, how the racial equity question was evaluated by the board and had discussed whether supplemental or more information or education uh, could be provided to assist the board with that. So I, I want to uh, just circle back on that before we move on. Yeah, and I think that uh, certainly as we looked at that, like you said, Leah, um, is kind of a not well-addressed piece in our NOFA maybe at this point. And if that's something that, uh, which I think we should uh, be addressing, maybe we need to clarify in our NOFA more about how that's being addressed with the project. So um, any thoughts on that? I'm in favor of having a little more clear uh, part of the NOVA about how the project's addressing uh, inequities. So, this is uh, Shannon Reed. I, Douglas County, I would um, agree that more explicit language and clarity. Um, is important and would be helpful um, and that perhaps a, a future discussion amongst us with with some more time available to um, talk through what it what it looks like to um, apply that lens and um, just kind of have an open discussion about how we are uh, considering that in all of the applications and, and specifically how the application reflects those questions and asks projects to um, project proposals to tell us um, how they are incorporating racial equity and thinking about it and addressing those issues. So I think explicit language is important so that we don't just um, talk around things or talk broadly, too broadly about things. Thank you, Shannon. Smalty soak up chair. So uh, to that end, Leah, can you look at what some other cities are doing, other boards, and kind of maybe have some suggestions at the um, okay, great. Something for us to look at, review prior to the meeting and, and uh, think about and then talk about. That'd be great. Okay, anything else on the NOFA? Um, any questions on the timeline? Bring me that. Mr. Chair, this is Sarah Waters, University of Kansas. The, the one thing I'm not quite clear on on timeline yet is with the city saying they're doing their report, and it sounded like Diane thought maybe August, if any of what that work will show us will be able to be incorporated. I'm thinking possibly, but I, I just, been a lot of things thrown out about 
dates and different timelines. So I, it would be nice if it could, I guess, is what I'd like to say. And then I think this conversation might be better informed about if, like, even what the matrix looks like at that point. Um, because if we do decide that we want to focus on a particular area or, you know, a two acre area or whatever it might be, there may be other things that would inform within the matrix. Um, and then I also think that I'm thinking about that capital improvement project that we're expecting to see again. And I'm also thinking about the incredible cost of building escalation um, and what those dollars might look like. So and there's a whole, whole lot of play. I think we're going to know more in two months and three months, but um, I got just kind of rambling now. So I'll stop, but if that could all sync up somehow before we release this NOFA, it would be nice. I think is my summary there. Yeah, uh, Monty Sokup Chair. And you know, I, I thought about that too in my mind and my gut feeling is that it won't sync up. Uh, and I say that because we might be able to know what that parcel is, but to have somebody come in and have, develop a, a reasonable proposal to get submitted to the NOFA maybe won't have time to occur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and for us to get, you know, the information out, I think what I see that process maybe looking more like is you know, in November or December, we that we as a group put out some kind of notice that we have this parcel and we want in the next round of NOFAs proposals that would incorporate the use of this parcel and then let people come back with either proposals that include an application on the NOFA or don't include them because we could have both. You know, they may not ask for funding for uh, that you know, you may have a private developer come in and say, just for the profit I make in building the buildings and getting the land, you know, I'll do the project. You know, I, I'm going to propose a project and not ask for additional funding out of the. I mean, it's possible, yeah. <laughs> maybe not probable, but possible. So, uh, you know, yeah. I think, you know, I think we I, need to. Yeah. I agree with you, Monty. I just, I, and then I think it goes back to Ron's initial point again of, do we have to put all the money then into this NOFA if we know we've got something else coming? Right. You know, or just because it's available now. So. Right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Anything else on the NOFA? Okay. We're um, going kind of quick because we're getting coming up on time here. So. Um, moving on to the quick updates, we had the uh, Lawrence City Commission housing study session. I hope everybody either watched that live stream that uh, or had a chance to watch the video. Um, were there any comments on that or did Jeff, did you, I saw you come on, did you want to comment on that? Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services Director. Uh, no chair, just wanted to be available if anybody had any questions on that. Okay. Well, what I gathered out of that, um, I actually live streamed most of it, but uh, was that they really wanted us to come forward with policy proposals, uh, you know, as far as being directed to our group. Uh, what I saw is they were looking to us to do and wanted to be receptive to policy changes that uh, benefit affordable housing. Um, I thought they were all very supportive. 
uh, of the ideas and had some good discussion. Uh, I don't know if there was that much. Maybe Jeff, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but uh, of other things that were really directly pointed at this group anyway. Yeah, go Ron. Uh, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative on the Advisory Board. Um, I, I'd have a, a question, I guess, for Jeff or perhaps you, Mr. Chairman. If, if we wanted to initiate a policy, for example, that said uh, any single family residential lot could now be used for two residential units. In effect, doubling the inventory of uh, space available, potentially doubling the inventory of space available for new homes. How should we initiate that kind of a policy recommendation to the city commission? Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services Director. Uh, it's a great question. It actually kind of leads into the quick item number two there. So I'll try not to tread too heavily into item number two with this response. But, you know, for the Land Development Code, the City Commission or the Planning Commission can initiate a text amendment response there. So in those instances where another board or advisory board sees an update or wants to see a policy change, typically in the case of uh, Ahab here could forward a letter to the city commission requesting such an amendment be initiated and studied. Now, initiating an amendment doesn't mean that it will automatically be adopted, but it gets the process going to do this research and studying to get it carried forward on that one. But um, I've got more, but I don't want to tread too heavily onto a quick update number two there for you all too. So I want to kind of separate them out, but um, that is something we're also going to take a look at with some of the items that we're doing with the land development code potentially is kind of looking at those different ways to kind of maybe approach some of these items in different ways that we didn't have back in mid-2000s. Monty Sokup, Chair, hold on. Uh, Jeff, don't we essentially, if you're building an affordable, you can already do that double density? Didn't we already push that through? But it, but it only applies if at least one of the units is affordable, or I can't remember exactly, but it, Yes, Jeff Craig, Planning Development Services Director. You're correct. There is the, the double density special use permit process that's in place and it does have some requirements about, I, I care if it's both or one of the units have to be permanently affordable, but there is that process that's in place there. Um, there's also some communities that are looking at that, not as a, as a special use, but as a permitted use and going through some different avenues and channels to that one. So it's, there's a lot of, you know, different ways that people are approaching this item and nationwide, truthfully. So I think this Monty Sokup Chair, I think the other thing, I'll get right to you, Ron, of this comment, uh, is if you have a greenfield development, I mean, you can essentially zone your thing, your built, your lots R3 or R5 and really create the density you want if that's what you want to do as a developer, right? Is that correct? Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services Director, that's correct. Okay. Ron, what, let's get back to you. Yes, um, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative on the Advisory Board. I guess what, what um, 
my point was not very obvious. And, and so I'll make my point much, much more candidly. I'm disturbed that the process requires advisory, the Affordable Housing Advisory Board recommendations to go through the Planning Commission before they get to the City Commission. Because what I've seen happen at the Planning Commission is planning commissioners then weigh all other kinds of consideration that they hear from the community and create a balance of what they think are the stakeholder interests between more trees in the front yard, sidewalks on both sides of the street, um, other, other requirements that add cost to the ultimate final price of a home or an apartment. And what happens then is the recommendations direct from the advisory board for affordable housing don't get heard by the city commission, at least in, in the area of uh, uh, anything that might fall under the scope of planning commission review. And I think that that prevents the city commission from hearing the proposals that are being made or could be made by AHAP. So I would like to see us develop a process where our planning related recommendations could go direct to the city commission without having to pass through the planning commission where they are balanced against planning commissioners interpretation of what other stakeholder interests are. You're on mute, Monty. I'm so good, Chair. I'm going to break the silence there. I don't know how to answer that question. It's it's um, real question for the city as to how our recommendations get. Uh, and and maybe the question is why can't we just send our recommendations direct to the city commission? Yeah, yeah. Or could they go to both at the same time so they don't so the commission gets the unwatered down version, if you will, of what our recommendations are, so they know what they're what the request was when they're reviewing whatever this planning commission ultimately sends them. I mean, that might be a middle ground there. I don't know. Um, we'll have to let Jeff <laughs> and or Diane talk to that process because I don't, I can't speak to it. So. All right. Mr. Chair, if I may, I might just fold that kind of right into the quick update number two there. I think we're, uh, Ron's going with kind of folds wonderfully into that one there. One of the things we're looking at doing is to start a revision and update process to the city's land development code. And the process for which text amendments get initiated comes from that land development code. So it's not, un, it's not out of the, the loop that it might be a part of that initiated process and look and see how do we do those kind of processes and amendments. Um, the real intent behind that code is to work at kind of streamline and, you know, 
simplify the way that the code works so that it can kind of lower those you know expectations on costs on both just staff but also in, in terms of money and value and time which go to those projects so that's one thing that we're working on to kind of streamline and be more efficient at the other one that we're looking at is not necessarily on the development code side of things but on the permitting side of things which is another component of this and what we're doing as a staff is we're starting the process to take apart our permitting processes and really look at how we can streamline and make those more efficient. Um, I think that AHAB and Planning Commission talked about this at their joint meeting. I know the Planning Commission has talked about this at the joint meeting with the County Commission, the City Commission, about working to kind of streamline and review and simplify a lot of those processes. So I just wanted to share an update. We're working on two different avenues of that one. So, um, you know, those kind of things could pop up. We will definitely keep them in mind as we start to go through those processes moving forward. But just wanted to share those two updates with the board today. Okay, any comments on that update? Okay, Smonty, so good chair, seeing none. We're going to move on to I. Sorry, Monty. Oh, go ahead, Paul. Uh, Paul Newsom, Lawrence Home Builders. Um, uh, Jeff, if you wanted any feedback from the home builders, I know that um, they've done some work evaluating and kind of looking into the permitting side of things. So, um, would be available for any input if you're interested. If Craig Planning Development Services Director, we appreciate all the input we can get on the process. So definitely please feel free to share everything and we'll we'll definitely take it in because it's um, only gets better with more information we get. Okay. Any other comments on that process? Okay. Uh Monty Circuit Chair uh we're going to move on to item three kansas housing resources corporation housing tax credit program um, estates of lawrence application um i don't know if there was a staff report on that other than they provided that uh, we've had they basically had one project submit uh, for those funds this is Danny Walters with Planning and Development Services. It, it was just to let you guys know um, that that is the, the slate of applications for, for 2022. So we didn't have any additional report on that item. Okay. Thank you, Danny. Appreciate that. Uh, we had a memo on the Kansas Open Meetings Act. Uh, we had some additional questions uh, regarding that and what constitutes a meeting. And I think that's all clarified in that memo. Uh, Ron, it looks like you maybe have a question regarding the memo. Um, yes, I have a question. Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative, I have a question regarding the memo. At the end of the memo, um, there's language that says that um, if a majority of the advisory board is meeting with another body, then they can't discuss the business of uh, the advisory board. And my question is, is there an exemption that allows us to meet jointly with the planning commission or city commission? Or, or is it simply that the meeting is noticed and posted publicly that allows us to meet with them? So it's not a so it's not a private meeting, it's a publicly noticed meeting. So it's okay then to meet 
in conjunction with another body and have a discussion on housing? I can answer that, Diane Stoddard, Assistant City Manager. So uh, in those cases, Mr. Gacious, um, that we would just notice up that as a meeting. So in the cases where, um, where say the Planning Commission is joining you all as they did recently in, in a meeting, um, uh, that all was noticed up appropriately that both of those bodies were meeting together. So that's a great example of, um, of where, where we do provide that notice to make sure that you're covered. Okay, thank you. Great. Any other questions on that memo? All right, great. We'll close that item. The fifth item, the National Association of Realtors 2021 Advocacy Agenda. Um, do you have any comments on that document? This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, there had been a request at the last AHAB meeting um, to bring um, policy discussions to the board. And so this is just really a, an FYI um, to see what the National Association of Realtors policy agenda is and if there were any policies that the board is interested in looking at more that we could do additional research and bring back to a future meeting. Um, as Monty Sogup Chair, I mean, I, I read through that actually last night and uh, there were a couple places where there were some intersection but I'm not sure that I found anything that I felt like it was something we should adopt and take action on I could certainly look at that closer but that was my uh, my read on that document anybody else See anything that felt like we should adopt and maybe move forward or consider for policy? Uh, the place where I thought it intersected was probably the financing uh, rights to financing and ability to get you know thirty year financing and those kind of things where there may be some intersection. Uh, uh, that's where I felt there was some some intersection between the two groups. So, all right, I am not seeing any comments on that. Any additional comments on that? So, we're going to close that. Is there any other new business that anybody would like to bring up? Okay, we have a quiet group today. Um, then we're going to move to calendar and then we're just about done. So uh, July 12th, the notice of funding availability timeline and draft application matrix review. That's at our next meeting. Uh, so we'll be uh, keep that on the top of your mind this next week. And then the following meetings are August 9th and September 13th. 
uh, and the September 13th is the CDBG and Home Investment Program hearing. Uh, that's the first hearing on that. So is there anything else, any other final comments from the board before we close the meeting? All right, I'm gonna ask for a motion to adjourn. Edith Guppy, so moved. Second. Edith made a motion, Ron seconded. Are there any comments? I will call a roll. Edith Guppy. Yes. Christina Gentry. Yes. Sarah Waters. Yes. Ron Gages. Yes. Thomas Howe. Yes. Paul Newsom. Yes. Shannon Reed. Yeah, Shannon minded. Maybe Shannon dropped off. Erica Zimmerman. Yes. Monty Soka. Yes. She voted. Motion passes zero. All right, we're adjourned. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. I was so excited to be able to do.